Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <laughs> I'm so through with you. I don't even know if we can play that. We can't play that. You can't include that. From Luminary, this is Here to Slay, the Black feminist, book-loving podcast of your dreams. I am Tressie McMillan Cottom. And I am Roxanne Gay, and we both read and write books. <laughs> we, do. <laughs> we do. We do. On Here to Slay, Tressie and I talk about what's on our minds, politics when we have to, race because we live in America, and culture because we all consume it. That's it. We like to talk about books and music and TV and all the media, really. Uh, and when we are done talking amongst ourselves, as we do, we bring on someone else to talk to, someone interesting, someone fascinating. Women, usually. Yeah. Black women, almost always. But we talk to Black men now and again. Thank you. Yes, they have their merits. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, we talk to people in the arts, politics, media, people who are getting shit done. Yeah. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey, Roxanne. So I think that you should be tired. Let me tell you why I think you should be tired. I am tired. On the day that we're recording, I think the royal drama has been going on now for three days. Mm. And my friend, you have kept up with it. Stroke for stroke, uh, <laughs> detail for detail, turn for turn. Uh, I, of course, forgot it was even happening. So there's a tale of our friendship. But catch us up. Where are we in the drama? Oh, it's a lot. You know, I actually am not a royal watcher. I yeah. don't care. They're rich white people and Megan, and they're going to be all right. Yeah. But there is something about the Meghan Markle story that interests me. And mm-hmm. I think it's because she's a black woman mm-hmm. and because I think most black women knew, girl, you don't know what you're getting into at all. And so I was very curious to see what she would have to say, because it seems really drastic to just peace out on the royal family. So, <laughs> I But that. does it, though? Once we think about <laughs> well, it. Well, now you know, I know why right. like they peaced out. Yeah. And, you know, however terrible you thought the, the royal family was, they're way worse. Mm-hmm. They're just way worse. And it's not merely the family members themselves. It's the bureaucracy around them. The people, and I've recently started watching The Crown unrelated to this, and... The people who work for the crown are intense Mm -hmm. and they take it seriously. And long story short, uh, the biggest revelations, at least for me, and they're not surprising, but still, when you hear them said out loud, you think, damn, Megan was dealing with suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and she asked for help and they wouldn't give it to her. They were like, no. Mm -hmm. And before Archie was born, there was speculation about how dark he would be. Which can I just say one little quick thing? I always think this piece is important because it cracks me up. Meghan Markle has for her entire career as an actress played white. 
And in fact, I remember the moment when she was in the USA Network show Suits, when people were discovering she was Black. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember it crystal clear. She has successfully played white at least as long as Harry has. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's what always kills me, like, about the royal family. I'm like, that girl... You could if you if you don't know you don't know you wouldn't have to yeah. know that she's black. So oh, and in all relax. the Hallmark movies, because you know she had a Hallmark movie phase. That's actually yes. how I know Meghan Markle. <laughs> and in every single one, Meghan Markle is Italian at best. Like mm-hmm. that's as dark as she plays in this universe. So it is hilarious to me that there would be conversation about how dark her child would be. But of course, it's not about how the child looks. It was about reminding them that he had introduced this genetic wild card into the obviously pristine genetics of the royal family. I mean, listen, you can see those genetics all over their faces. Like, <laughs> they're all inbred. The the queen and the prince, I love that she never made him a king. They're cousins. So, mm-hmm. you know, are we really going to worry about little Archie? Um, but they're, they were terrified of the Russian roulette of it all. Yep. And... Archie is a little light bright, all right? You wouldn't know, as far as I can tell. He's a cutie patootie, and they need to leave that baby alone. But also, he didn't get the title mm-hmm. of prince, but that's actually standard. And he will get the title eventually if the monarch so chooses, mm-hmm. but he also wasn't getting protection. But the best plot twist was that, I mean, trust a Black person to do it, Tyler Perry, my nemesis, mm-hmm. came through. And provided them a place to live for several months and mm-hmm. provided them with security and so gave he them took that the, safe harbor. He took they the needed. homeless royals in off the street. Sure what a did. giver. He okay. Did. Let's talk about the Tyler Perry moment. It did mm. produce a lot of really top shelf black Twitter comedy, which I always appreciate that. My favorite was somebody saying, who had to sit the queen down and explain to her who the fuck Tyler Perry was? I do like that moment, imagining Mm -hmm. that. But let's just be real here for a second. Like, yes, it was nice of him. But I think we go too far when we say it was kind of him. Let me just tell you why I think You think it was a business decision? I mean, okay, listen. When Meghan and Harry, before they officially renounced and left— and they were looking for it. It leaked that they were looking for a home in L.A. And yeah, they I flew on Tyler's said, jet. Yes. And I said, well, of course they are. That is actually the smartest move. Such an American woman move, too, by the way, mm-hmm. which is you take everything you've now got from the royal family, the connections, the prestige. You bring that back to a place like L.A. where you had a pre-existing network uh, in Hollywood And you are primed to be L.A. royalty. All of the deference and respect that she maybe didn't get in England, you absolutely get in L.A. if you come back the former prince and princess or whatever, right? Because Mm -hmm. we are enamored with the crown, and especially in a place like Hollywood, which is just in love with that sort of storyline, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, she's coming back to write a storyline. And Tyler Perry would know. Are you kidding me? To have housed them during their their moment of need as I think Meghan returns to build her empire? Mm Mm-hmm frankly, is a very good move on Tyler's part. Put it this way. I don't see Tyler Perry 
out there housing somebody off the block in Atlanta. I think that the fact that she is who she is had a lot to do with it. And more credit to him, it's a good move. And I suspect it will pay off. Tyler's known for making really good moves. I, he doesn't do anything that's not calculated. I'm saying, and come on. He certainly learned from Oprah, who conducted the interview. Uh, oh, oh, Because okay. they are, they're good friends. I, okay. You know, what did we say last week? Crackheads don't marry non-crackheads. Correct. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, because Oprah made like seven to nine million dollars on this interview, at least for the United States distribution. And and she made oodles more for the international Mm -hmm. distribution. And I respect it. I respect the hustle. Yes, it is business. And I am not critiquing that. I'm just saying that thinking about these things in terms of charity Mm -hmm. is a very um, not billionaire person thing to do. Like those (laughs) of us who are not billionaires would go, oh, that's so nice. Mm -hmm. Boo-boo. I don't think billionaires are are known for being. No. One thing I'm learning about rich people is that they're always going to make money. Whether they're breathing, sleeping, talking, walking, mm-hmm. it, they're going to make money. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting to see the fallout. I, I think that the royal family, you know, they tried to, you know, launch that ridiculous HR investigation against Meghan when, you know, I'm sorry. But I've she doesn't even work there anymore. Right. I was like, I've what watched is- the crown. I know those people have treated people like shit yeah. well before. I, and the thing is, I don't think that it's ever okay to treat people poorly, especially when you have such power over them. But I don't believe for a second that she was this tyrannical bully. Mm-hmm. And, and even if she was, she would have been right at home. It right. wouldn't have she been, a, been it doing what they taught normal. her to do. Exactly. That's the weird thing. If you are a tyrannical bully in the royal family, you are acting royal, frankly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think they anticipated how popular she is. Yeah. Even though that was part of why they tried to push her out, because they were afraid of Diana happening all over again. And then it did. Um, they, you know, they really underestimated her. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people underestimated her. Yeah, I, what well, I now, saw, that's the thing. Now, let's talk about what that. What I saw in that interview was a calculated move. Girl, I, I looked was at Miss like, Thing's face. Yes, I looked at Miss mm-hmm. Thing's face about 10 minutes or so in after they'd done all of the, oh, so glad to be in, oh, yes, mm-hmm. and I remember. Okay, once they got that out of the way and Miss Thing was executing her plan, mm-hmm. I said, oh, Oh, okay. This is not a woman who has let life happen to her, if you know what I'm saying. Correct. And I don't think that necessarily has to be a bad thing, but I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, women and ambition and how it manifests. That Mm -hmm. is an ambitious woman Mm -hmm. who has what it takes, I think, to fulfill and execute on her ambitions. The crown made it easy for her to do. Mm Mm-hmm. I do think they gave her the ammunition to do what she has done. Throughout that interview, it was clear that she knew, she revealed what she wanted to reveal. And a lot of what she withheld was her way of telling the crown. Oh, yeah. She was signaling. I have receipts. Yeah. What she oh, was yeah. doing was threatening them. Yes. Was, that was a hostage situation. It was situation. a hostage situation. I was just like, 
oh shit this That's is exactly I'm, I'm down, you know the, i wasn't the gossip part whatever i was intrigued by the hostage situation yes because she was letting them know i have emails yes she was listen miss thing has tape i don't care what anybody mm-hmm. says oh she absolutely that's has tape. not a woman who didn't walk into a situation was like okay i see i see what this is mm-hmm. and good for her though yeah good for her yeah and i think Dariah has her hands all over that too that's a black mama preparing okay, her child. So can we just talk about this for a minute? Mm-hmm, because, you can. know, I consider one of my areas of expertise to be black mothers mm-hmm. uh, as uh, as a person who has a black mother, capital B, capital M. <laughs> amen. Amen, amen. Okay. Okay, listen. That's a, her mother is a black mother, capital B, capital M. And I knew oh, it from yes. the moment. When the she was right up there at the I wedding in her, her little outfit Are right you? next to her child, I was like, yep. The way she was sitting up there like one Miss Vivian would do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I knew exactly. Like, this is my wedding. Thank, uh, thank you. I knew exactly what that whole situation was. And let mm-hmm. me tell you what they were really saying about everybody's doing a very literal read of the comment about being afraid of what color archery is going to be. There is that literal read, which is, yes, it was just straight up colorism and anti-blackness. But let me tell you why I think it was probably said that's not a comment they would have made had Meghan Markle's parents' racial identities been reversed. If her father was black and her mother was white, mm-hmm. right, this is a very different conversation. They were commenting not only on his literal color, but what they think is going to be his cultural inheritance Correct. from Meghan because her mother is black. And her mother is deeply involved in her life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, that is as much about the fear of the fact that Megan, no matter what she looked like, had been raised by a mother. And we all assume that you have the racial identity of your mother. That's just how it goes. You know, I even I'll even apply it to myself. I grew up with a Haitian American mother. So there's a lot I may not know about black American culture, but I I can get down as a Haitian woman. Don't worry. It's it's going to be all right. Yeah. Um, You know, I think that when Megan met Harry and fell in love, and I do believe they do love each other. I, frankly, I think that's when she leaned into her blackness. Oh, yeah. she was oh, like, yeah. oh, no, now's the time. Mm-hmm. And here we are with this interview, and now the crown is on their heels. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that this was their way of pushing to get the financial support that they I would need is a is a stretch. They think they deserve. Let's put it that, that way. They think they deserve. Right. And, uh, but you know, th- I will say I don't think anyone deserves yeah. the wealth of the crown. And and so it'll be interesting to see what happens next. What it did remind me of is our desire for escapism. Um, as we are coming out of, many people feel like we're coming out of some of the darkness of not only the Trump presidency, although that casts a pretty big shadow, people are starting to get the vaccine, as we've talked about. People are seeing their parents become vaccinated. There is the sense that, you know, we may be turning a corner in many places in the country. We are sort of reaching either a uh, plateau or the decline of new COVID cases. I don't know. I think people were feeling a little bit more open to escapism. And that show was one of the first that I have experienced in a while that had that captured that sort of public energy of like, Mm -hmm. finally, we get to talk about something else, which is why I think we're so interested. So even if you aren't interested in the royal family aspect, I think it was this great moment of escapism. And that's the kind of moment we are probably turning the corner on as we, you know, reemerge from our bubbles, maybe. Throughout the thing, I just thought if everyone involved in this situation had just read a little bit more 
Some of this could have been avoided. I'm not trying to be funny. You could have just read the the Regency romance novels, and I think had a better sense of what the royal family I mean, experience would be read like. Them, just like check out Bridgerton, right? It's a it's a, it's a version. That is so true. If Megan had watched The Crown, like one of the things, and I don't know if I believe her on this point or not, it felt a little, hmm. Mm-hmm. She like didn't do any research into the royal family. She didn't do her Googles at all uh, to, to know like that you have to curtsy before the queen. I just like, have you never seen television I'm rolling my eyes. That was Megan performing White Innocence uh, for uh, an audience. Mm -hmm. You know that? Golly gee, wow. Okay. I I never believed that about anyone. I I just, I refuse to believe that sentient adults are walking around and they don't Google people. It's wild to me. And so, you know, reading is fundamental, friends. Because again, if you had read, you might have known that you should do your Googles. And Um, not only that. There are all these books out there now about race and Regency Mm -hmm. and uh, the royal family. Everybody being stunned about the extent of the racism and how brutal the racism is. I'm like, have you not read your Beverly Jenkins? What do you think is going to happen? And and speaking of reading. Which we always like to be speaking of. You know, my favorite subject. In a previous episode... Jasmine Guillory was talking to us about her reluctance to read and engage with serious fiction during this pandemic, or the piranha, as I like to call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you been able to read for pleasure at all? And what kinds of things are you reading for pleasure? I know what you're reading for um, writing, because you talked about reading around a topic in your essay piece, which I really enjoyed. Thank Um, you, my friend. As I'm writing a chapter on research for my book, I just thought, oh, I'm just going to photocopy this. Oh. And Thank you, girl. By Tressie. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I go back and forth. So, like, I can usually read through anything. So mm-hmm. I remember Jasmine saying that, and I think I even said, ah, I don't really have that problem. I do have an attention span problem sometimes when there's a lot going on. And so I tend to read shorter stuff. So, like, speaking of some of our previous, like, uh, guests, so Jericho was on, and he was saying, listen, poetry is the literature of the moment because everybody's attention span is so shortened because of the times. So like I do find myself moving between genre a lot over the pandemic or the Priyanka as I like to call it. So fiction is actually not where I went unless I do like um, a really easy beach read type of thing. I'll, I'll look at the uh, bestsellers list for something that, you know, you know, the top 10 uh, vacation reads or something. I always pick one of those up. I always have one in the car or in my bag. I tend to escape best into creative nonfiction. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm the exact opposite. Yeah. It surprises people, but I actually don't read nonfiction. <laughs> I don't. I just don't like it. Uh huh. I read it for work. Mm-hmm. I read it for research. So when I sit down for fun, I, I don't want to read about reality. I don't. Yeah. I don't yeah. And so I've been reading a lot because things are so mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. And part of it is also I get a ridiculous number of blurb yeah. requests, and I am a little picky mm-hmm. in that I believe in reading the books that I I'm potentially going to endorse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of people, I think, in the literary community whose names matter, who, oh, yeah. who when they endorse something, when they support something, when they create an initiative, you are going to follow them. And one such writer is Jason Reynolds, yeah. uh, who is a YA writer 
who I've been following with great interest for a while now because he's always making the most interesting moves. Mm-hmm. He is productive. His books include As Brave As You, Ghost, Long Way Down. His latest, written with Ibram X. Kendi, is stamped Racism, Anti-Racism in You. He is currently the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Yep. And, uh, you know, we're peers. He's exciting. We did uh, have a wonderful conversation with Jason where we cover a lot of ground. Everything from literary ephemera to the importance of sleep. And because we are writers and he's a writer, we wanted to find out how that whole thing has been going for him in the last year. We talked a little, Jason. Welcome to the show. About Thank you so much. Having, we're really thrilled to talk to you. We wanted to talk about books because, frankly, we're tired of talking about um, big P politics. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We'd like to talk about For something sure. else. So normally this time of year, if if how I know of like your life and schedule from social media. And so usually you would have been out on the road these days, right. like all the rest right. of us. You've been grounded. How are you working? Are you working right now? What's that look like for you? I am. I'm working a lot. You know, it's interesting. The first three months of quarantine were rough mm-hmm. in terms of work. It's because, I, I, you know, I'm somebody, I'm one, I'm a ritual writer. Okay. I am one of those people who try to try to get a little bit done every day and mm-hmm. and try to work as a form of personal ritual to keep myself on the level, mm-hmm. right? Like emotionally and mentally. And it was really difficult the first three months. Couldn't find my language. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, what has been helpful is going back to pen and pad. Hmm. Computers have become different now because we have to use them for That everything. is a very good point. That um, is so fascinating yeah. you say that. I switched during the pandemic to writing. It's a digital tablet, but it is a tablet that feels like paper. Um, if people follow me yeah. on social media, they're sick to death of hearing about the remarkable tablet that I got. Because I keep, <laughs> listen, <laughs> and that I made Roxanne get, yeah. <laughs> Tressie made me get one because she made it seem like the next coming. And now I find myself in meetings taking notes right? and sketching out things and doing little outlines. It's handy as hell. And then you can yes. send your PDF to yourself. What's it called? It's called The Remarkable. And it's these, bless them, I think it's a Swedish company. So God bless the Swedes and their social democracy. That's why they created something useful. Here's the thing I love about it. Um, it only does writing, Jason. So like the thing with the computer, like there's no, there are no apps, right? It's not putting you on the internet. Nobody can find you on it. You're not getting a notification or an email, right? And like the tactile, they 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 captured it. It feels like a notepad. All right, I'm gonna check. Okay. I'm gonna check it, it does. Out. It feels like you're like handwriting some stuff, and it's great for transcription. And it's interesting to hear that you've changed your workflow because I I think a lot of writers have been mm-hmm. struggling with having to be in Zooms all day, especially now that people have figured out, oh, I can get you yeah. to come to yeah. uh, Timbuktu <laughs> and speak to my my little library. And I, I'm actually happy to do it because Lord knows I'm not, I, I'm getting to the point in my career where I'm not mm-hmm. going to fly everywhere. I'll go almost anywhere, but there are just some places <laughs> that will not see me. And this is a great way to to reach people in a lot of really remote places that would not normally have the funds to bring writers like us out there. So it's been great, but I'm glad to hear that you found a new process. Have you found that the way you tell stories is changing with writing by hand? For sure. I mean, it's it's hard to explain because I never really thought about it 
until I had to do mm-hmm. it. There's so much mm-hmm. less restraint uh, for me. So right, whenever I put the pen to the pad, it only reminds me of when I was sort of much younger and would, you know, free writing. Yeah. And it, it, it seems boundless in a different way, mm-hmm. even though it actually has mm-hmm. more constraint. Yeah, right. Because right. it's physical and it, you can run out of space. Yep. You, can, you, you can't delete per se, right? Mm-hmm. But for some reason, it just, mm-hmm. it, it feels a little more fluid. Um, the, the tactile nature of it, my hand, right? This motion mm-hmm. feels much more fluid for mm-hmm. me. Um, and thinking about our OGs and being like, man, I wonder, was right. there something to this, Tony Morrison? I yep. wonder if you were, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you were right. You know, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, the long hand on the legal pad. Like I just I associate that with the greats. Right. Yeah. The legal pad. Hella, hella legal. Yeah. (laughs) And I will say this other thing. And I'm so glad you brought up the the tablet you're using, um, because I'm also like a I'm a nerd in in lots of ways. And one of the ways that I really kind of nerd out is thinking about us and our contemporaries and our time and how we won't really have much archive. I think of this all the time. Oh my goodness. So one, (laughs) yes, Jason. So one of the things that I loved about this was, um, admittedly the way I can write has changed uh, a lot over the last couple of years as resources, my resources have changed. And so I'm always really transparent that, you know, I now have a research assistant and she does a lot of what I just would have done for myself, have always done for myself, Mm -hmm. translating all the notes, you know, transcriptions and all of that, but still being able to send her my notes. And one of the things we do, we do is we turn it into a material culture. She prints them out and we're, we put them in binders and it's useful for me to look at the movement of my thoughts over time as I was, you know, reading new texts. But all of that stuff that would have been ephemeral now feels really solid. Mm. Before yep. a mm. year, maybe two years ago, I don't know what an archive of mine would have looked like. Yes. I feel so grateful for my editor over the course of my career. She old school, so mm-hmm. everything has been hand- handwritten notes. I got all my manuscripts. I got I have everything. Wow. That's amazing. People are going to want to know what Roxane Gay's handwriting looked like. That's right. It matters. It matters. I know, and that's going to be like the holy grail. <laughs> yeah, trying to find it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Archives, Tressie um, and Jason, because I recently read Black Futures, mm. yeah. uh, which was um, edited by Jenna Wortham and Kimberly Drew, both of whom have been on this show. And a lot of it is about archive Mm -hmm. and how do we archive the digital age? And it has gotten me thinking about my archive because a couple libraries have said, can we have your archives? I'm like, I don't know what to give you other than (laughs) a couple little emails. You know, I don't do shit by hand. And, you know, I think a lot of writers like us are thinking, like, what is our archive? Mm -hmm. How do we leave something behind? Yeah. What kinds of things do you want to include? Oh, I'm so because I've been thinking about this for so long and because I grew up with a mom who is like, you know, she's one of these people who are like, everything matters. Everything counts. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and so she's I mm-hmm. had the kind of mom who's like, I'm going to save these dirty sneakers of yours because one day somebody's going to pay me a million dollars for these sneakers. That's right? so sweet because my mama <laughs> threw all my stuff out. I get on her about this all the time. My mother threw all my stuff out. She was so not sentimental. So I'm so envious. She got it. She got it. My whole life. My mother has my entire life. Right. And so Aww. early on, I started thinking about this. And so I started writing handwritten letters to people. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I because I wanted them to have a physical item that 40 years from now, 50. I have Langston Hughes letters 
handwritten letters and, and mm-hmm. with his signature on them, right, that I've bought from yeah. dealers that I personally own because I know that this kind of stuff really matters. And so even now, I, I just wrote a, a note to a kid named Solomon. I wrote him a handwritten letter. <laughs> and I hope that his mom makes sure that he keeps that so that 20 years from now, he'll he'll have it. Mm-hmm. I have tons of art from my archive. I have tons of first editions from my friends and people that we all know that I've asked for, been intentional mm-hmm. about like, hey, please, can, okay. can you let me yeah. have, I have an arc of Man Chopping the Promised Land, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I go and I buy and I search for these things so that it's not just my work, but also the work of the people that I admire that, that sort of have created my, my archive. Oh, now that's really super thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I have not thought about, um, my friends work in that way and I'm going to have to reflect on why I haven't. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're, we're super We lucky. should be keeping each other's archives too. I, I saw a picture of Jackie Woodson years ago, a young Jacqueline Woodson. She had this necklace around her neck and I was like, yo, where you get that necklace from? She's like, Audrey Lord gave it to me. Mm. You see what I'm saying? As one does. Like As one does. <laughs> but the truth is, is that we're living in that kind of moment. It just doesn't feel like mm-hmm. it because we all know each mm-hmm. other and it's just happening in real time. But like all mm-hmm. of us who, uh, who know Tressie or Roxanne's work is like, we should probably be paying attention and asking for stuff. And if they say no, they say no. But mm-hmm. if you got relationships with these people, hey, you got to write me a handwritten note and send it to me. Yeah. Create some yeah. correspondence. Create some <laughs> correspondence. Okay. I like that. I do, And it is something that you have to be intentional about mm-hmm. in a way that while I absolutely believe that our greats and our ancestors were intentional about it, being intentional about it in the digital age, as Roxanne was saying, is a different level, I think, of yes. uh, paying attention. Absolutely. Yeah, that we have to do. So you just wrote Solomon. You talk to kids a lot, huh? Yeah. yeah. I suspect that for a lot of the kids who write you, you're the first piece of mail they've ever gotten. How <laughs> cool is that? Are you doing a lot of talking still to kids, even though you're grounded right now? I just got off of Zoom. I, this, is yeah. a, this is my third or fourth Zoom of the day. It was six yesterday, five the day before that. Like I'm, yeah. I'm constantly sort of in conversation, and it's rough. I ain't gonna lie mm-hmm. to you. I'm having me too. It takes more energy it sure to try does. to connect through the screen. Yes. But shorties are going through a tough time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I live a privileged, very fortunate life right now. So like, if I gotta sacrifice a little bit, and I, I take care of myself, I try to. But if I gotta sacrifice a little bit to ensure that young people who have been quarantined and have and away from their friends and they're dealing with their own mental health stuff and all mm-hmm. the other things that are creeping into their psyches, if I could show up and crack a joke or two and laugh a little bit and, and shine some light, it's all good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like why why not? I um I truly truly love our children. In a chemical way. Mm-hmm. And the work that I make, mm-hmm. I intentionally make for that. You know, in my in my genre, my category, there are people who write for children because they wanted to be writers and the publishing industry categorized them right. as children's writers, yeah. right? But that wasn't their intention, mm-hmm. right? I intentionally you sought this like out. this is this is it, right? This is what I want um and continue to want to do. Mm. Why is it that you connect to children so much? Because it's rare to hear a man admit that he enjoys children. And I, you know, and I don't mean that in the sort of trite men don't want kids way. I mean, like that you want to connect with Mm -hmm. young people. What is that connection for you? You know, I don't really know, except for, um, except for, I think you around adults enough, you realize that adults ain't it. (laughs) 
Right. It's like, I mean, we all, I mean, when I really think about, like, when I really think about, I mean, adults are the people who run the country, run yeah. the world. Right? And I'm like, they, they getting it wrong. Right. Yeah. But when I'm around, when I'm around the kids, they feel like the most human of the humans. Mm. They still believe that the world is a malleable place. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that. And, and don't get me wrong, like they serve me as much as I serve them, right? Like the truth is, is that like the work that I'm doing, whether it's for kids or for adults, as I sort of embark on that as well, um, requires an awful lot of imagination. But as adults, it becomes harder and harder to hold on to that imagination. But if you're around the people where the imagination is still fresh, it tends to stoke the fire in a different way. Mm-hmm. These babies still believe that the world is like is is truly an oyster, right? Mm-hmm. They really think they can mm-hmm. change it if they can just get out of school, right? They're like, if I could just make it out of my mama house, out of mama I can house, change the that's world, right. right? I, I can change the mm-hmm. world. And I love that ego. I love that audacity. I love that irreverence. And I try to stay as close to it as possible so that I can continue to be creative yeah. and continue to make the work mm-hmm. that I need to make to, that's saving my life every day, mm-hmm. you know? So speaking of, I feel like there's an intersection of these two things that you've been on Zoom a lot, but even before that, you were not one of these writers that eschewed digital cultures. I mean, mm. how could you, right? You're talking to young people. This is their culture. They're sure. making it. Sure. At the same time that you're missing sort of like though the materiality and appreciating the materiality of writing. So when you're talking like to young people though about reading and writing and you're doing it in digital spaces... Are we talking to young people about the importance of that too? How what are the conversations like for you in digital spaces when you're talking to young people about reading and writing? Mm, it depends on what we're talking about, right? There are literacy issues, mm-hmm. right? And if we're talking about literacy issues, that's one conversation. But if we're talking about interest, mm-hmm. that's a very different conversation. And typically the conversation around interest has less to do with the books per se these days, because we do have so many mm-hmm. more books than we had when I was a kid and when you all were children and like yep. it's different now. It has more to do with who exactly is talking to them, right? Okay. And so what mm-hmm. we never talk about is representation as it pertains to the person who is offering the book. So it's like mm-hmm. anybody can tell a young person, yo, you got to go read. But if they don't trust you, what does it matter that you tell them okay, that? Gotcha. If they don't know you, if they don't, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so these conversations I'm having are actually all pretty easy conversations because they've already bought into me. It's the way that I felt about Tupac as a kid. Uh-huh. It's like, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. He could have sold candles. Mm-hmm. And I'd have been like, hey, Ma, we got to go get these Tupac candles because I don't. And it's like, you don't burn candles. Don't matter. I believe Tupac, so I believe mm-hmm. I'm probably going to need these candles mm-hmm. for something, right? Mm-hmm. That's my whole method. It's human. It's about humanity, right? Mm-hmm. I need you to sort of trust me and know that I'm, I really love you. I love you, right? And I want you to be able to feel that and know that immediately so that when I'm asking you or talking to you about the importance of reading in a non-didactic way, you might just believe I'm telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. Plus, I come from what you come from. Mm-hmm. I've, been, I've been there already. I struggled with reading. Mm-hmm. I didn't get on until I was almost 18 years old when it came to reading. Right, yeah. I love you know? this about your story. First of all, that it's true for more people than we admit yes. to. So there's yes. also about you owning it. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and yeah. I've seen you own it in circles where it's one thing to own that on the internet and say that. Uh, let's be mm-hmm. real. It's another thing to even say it maybe out in everyday life. I've seen you say this in literary circles, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you yeah. own that story. Listen, ultimately, I got one speed. It's the speed of me. I ain't mm-hmm. worried about what nobody think about me, right? Yeah. Ultimately, and this is what I appreciate, honestly, about the two of you, actually, uh, is that, like, it is what it is. Everybody who who has heard of you all or who has been in your space or have listened to you all knows 
is exactly what it is. Like, like what I'm telling you is what it is, right? Yeah. And it don't matter if I'm in front of my mama or if I'm in front of the Obamas. Mm-hmm. My story is my own. It's the most expensive thing I have. Yeah. I ain't finna make it. I ain't finna make myself small because I'm scared of your judgment. You can't do what I've done if you ain't been where I've been. I ain't worried about you. Speak. Yes. You I can't don't... do what I do. If you could, you would have done it. You would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> Make another hole. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I only hear factual information being spoken. I only hear facts. Listen, there's nothing to like about being around other authentic people, though, to just really bring it out of you, to be fair. That's what oh. this is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, make another so, hole. So, Jason, one of the things that I know you're doing as part of this sort of reaching people on this, you know, on a really authentic level and just being this is what it is, is that you are now the national ambassador for young people's literature. Yeah. That's right. And you have this grab the mic, tell your story. And you also created a YouTube offshoot called Write, Write, Write. What kinds of things do you hope to do with this as you expand the role and really get into it? Because we know you want to encourage young people to read and create and tell their stories. Do you have ambitions beyond that? Well, you know, when it comes to the ambassadorship, it's still a pretty new thing. Mm-hmm. I'm the seventh ambassador. Mm-hmm. I'm the seventh ambassador. It's dope, right? And for those listening who don't know what it is, it's, it's basically, it's a part of the laureate system, mm-hmm. right? It's basically, we know what the poet laureate is. And, and, and so this is the laureate for children's literature, mm-hmm. basically. And what, what are my plans or, or, or what are my thoughts about it beyond, beyond this? Honestly, to be completely honest with you, Roxanne, like this gig and this appointment is what I was already doing and it's what mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing when it's over. Mm-hmm. This, is what I, this is what I do, right? My goal hasn't necessarily changed okay. because I think that a bigger goal isn't necessary if the goal at hand can be carried out consistently, right? Then it, it in essence, by default becomes bigger as the results become bigger, mm-hmm. right? And so I just want to continue to stay the course and, 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 and figuring out creative ways to get young folks excited and involved with reading and engaged with language, and not necessarily literature as much as literacy, mm-hmm. um, which I deem to be yeah. more important, and validating the internal story, right? If, if you have a story that you're comfortable with owning, then it's much easier it can become much easier or at least a little less daunting for you to engage with the story outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my whole thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think people um, realize that we still have some serious, like really physical divides between kids and books because we think we're in an information age, right? And we're all awash in words. This is a discourse society mm-hmm. now. If you speak in your exist, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you've got all these channels where you can where you can speak, you can do storytelling, but getting books in kids' hands is still a real practical thing, uh, yeah. which you which you do a lot of. Can you put in concrete terms for us and for our audience what that looks like, like on the ground? I don't know what the, the book deficits that exist, I guess, like how hard it is to get books into kids' hands. It's tough. I mean, it's tough in every single facet, whether you're talking about the school system, the politics mm-hmm. behind education in this country are... Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It, 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 it's, cr- it's criminal. Yeah, it is. Right? Yes. It, 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 it is criminal. And then I think about the library system, and it depends on where you are. I mean, you go out to Ohio, library system rocking. I just read I an article seen... about that library like a week ago. It's in one of the magazines, but they were saying that the library system in Ohio is phenomenal. Rocking. It's off the chain. <laughs> about six years ago, I spoke at the Ohio Librarians Association, and I'm I'm bungling the name, but they are mm-hmm. intense. 
And I mean that in the best way. Yeah. I had a wonderful time at the conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's robust. It, it, it's robust. And they are particularly good at reaching rural mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. and people yeah. in the cities. And they're very diverse and they like really mm-hmm. care about reaching people who don't often get the attention mm-hmm. of libraries and the the intent um, to like include books that they mm-hmm. might want to read. Yes. Yeah. Ohio's a model. Hmm. Ohio is a model. I mean, you know, in the children's literature world, you know, behind closed doors, they'll, they'll say like, listen, your book work in Ohio, your book work in Texas, ah. you successful. You're yeah. successful. Yeah. Because they control that those library systems yeah. control the destiny of children's literature, of, of children's writers. That's fascinating. I know, mm-hmm. I knew about Texas as the epicenter of textbooks. So they got the most schools. They got the most schools. And so they yep. dictate what all the rest of the school districts do. Um, so I knew that about Texas. For whatever reason, Ohio has never pierced my awareness. Popping. Yeah. It's popping. But, but, but you think about that, but then you think about other places. I mean, like I've been through, I've been all over the country. I've been to all the scary places. Mm-hmm. And you go to some libraries and they and it's it's like they're piecing together, right? It's like yeah. books from sixty years ago. They're doing the best they can to hold on to, mm-hmm. or they can't get anyone in the library because there's nothing in the library to come and mm-hmm. come and rent, or the library is too mm-hmm. far away from where people actually live. Mm-hmm. And so, how am I going to get to the library if I don't have the necessary transportation? And so, what I've been doing over the course of oh, over the years of, of of being in this game is I just been buying books. I just be you know, mm-hmm. you just do it. Like my whole thing yeah. is like I can't do it all, but I could do something. Yeah. So I don't have so every year, a couple times a year, you you buy a couple class sets. You buy if you got a little extra, give a little extra, mm-hmm. right? And so I feel lucky and fortunate. And I and you know, I'm not a religious man. And because I'm not a religious man, I gotta figure out ways to tithe. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. this is and this is sort of the way that I sort of this is my ten percent or twenty percent. And I give it back. You know, I did the thing over was that last year in November where I bought out all the books mm-hmm. in DC. Right? Yes. I remember hearing that when it happened and I thought, oh man, I that's something so simple but so important. And yeah, yeah. We should have, oh, why didn't we think about this sooner? Oh, I thought it was Thank great. you. And I'm, and I'm hoping that moving forward, I, I hope a lot of us do it. Like, it's like, if you got, like, it don't even take nothing, right? And and, and the truth is that mm-hmm. we don't talk about sort of uh, those of us who do have a little more, we won't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll be yeah. wanting to be like, mm-hmm. I'll be wanting to be like, hey, nudge, nudge, you know you got a little extra. Just buy out the books. Yeah. It, ain't no big, it ain't no big deal. And let the people go and, and, and get what they've been wanting to get but can't get because they ain't got the 30 bucks mm-hmm. or the 25 bucks to get anything mm-hmm. extra. So, um, First of all, that is so black of you. <laughs> I just I know, that, the way he just said just you, I you know, know. I was like when you when you did this I was like I know it's just I know yeah, mm-hmm. clearly I'm I'm lonely I miss black people <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that just felt good to me it just felt good and so uh, we are all love fest here with Jacqueline Woodson again I just I want to shout her out I I have a small library it's named for my grandmother a collection at a church that uh, I mm. support and. I didn't put a public call out. I think I said something on Twitter. Maybe this is a, two years ago. What, oh, I was soliciting authors because the library at the church is focused on the kids um, in the church. Um, I said, you know, give me some authors, you guys, with some things we need to go buy, you know, because we were just going to we were just putting together Amazon list and we we're just going to buy them and drop them off. Maybe about two weeks after that. They called me from the church and said, we've got some mail here for you. I was like, mail? I don't even go to church. I just, you know, what, somebody <laughs> sent me something to church. And it was six boxes of books from Jacqueline. Man. Yeah. No. She, yeah. yeah. She a real one. Oh. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Neither am I. Yeah. I started she crying. Really yep, yep, yep. That'll do it for me. That was it. 
<laughs> yeah. So she can call me she, from the highway and I'm going to come. Absolutely. Yeah. Whatever she needs. Yeah. She, she's yeah. been an amazing support system for so many of us. Yeah. And same for you. If you're ever on the side of the highway, I got you. And I might call you. It might happen. Yeah. <laughs> Just consider us your black feminist AAA. <laughs> for the record. So what are you reading right now? Anything popping off for you, Jason? You know what? I just got this yesterday. This is uh, the, the kink joint. Yeah. Oh, that's kink. An anthology of erotic stories about BDSM. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, Kwan, <laughs> I'm, but I, I'm a little familiar <laughs> with it, I guess. Are, are you in this joint? You probably <laughs> I oh, am. Your name right there. <laughs> yeah, I just got the kink joint yesterday, and I'm going uh, to get into that and see what it's talking about. I'm just curious and interested. Mm-hmm. And honestly... And honestly, I'm working on um, a short story, a piece of erotica for for an anthology. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to like find my footing. Right? Yeah. I'm like, let me read some stuff because I don't want to make a fool. Because you know, men write sex terribly. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm not right? going to tell you and why so y'all I'm, write I'm, it terribly, but I think we do. could. I think we. Well, because you. I think it's a generally, reflection. Yes, I was going to say, you're drawing on what you know. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, can I just say, writing yeah. sex is very hard. It's just something um, that I admire about people actually who can do it very well. Many, many, many years ago, I tried to get a work as a writer for Penthouse Letters because they mm-hmm. was just, this is early days of internet, and it was like paying a ton of money. It's like $500 a letter or something. But you had to, you know, you had to send in samples, and I will never forget. You want to talk about breaking my heart? They sent it back to me and was like, yeah, no, this is horrible. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I am not good enough to write letters to Penthouse? <laughs> I don't think we have enough respect for how difficult we don't. it is to write a good erotica. Yeah. yeah. Which is why I'm going to study it before yeah. I write the short stuff. But let me... <laughs> Let me get my my nice name. Let me get all. Let me get everything I need to like try to learn how to do this in a way that still feels sophisticated. Yeah. Um, so because yeah. you're working you know. on an adult novel, right? I am. What is it? You know. I, okay. So I am interested in epigenetics, mm-hmm. hmm. right? Which is I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's factual, but I'm curious about the theory around it. Um, and because I'm so curious about epigenetics, I've as we've gone through centuries of trauma mm-hmm. I've, uh, and specifically over the last 60 years as it per- 70 years as it pertains to sort of police violence mm-hmm. and lynching and all of the things that has happened to our folks i often wonder what would it be like like what does that look like 100 years from now 200 years from now mm-hmm. could there be a, a, a child born mouthless could there be a child born with holes already in its body? Mm. If, if evolution mm-hmm. and epigenetics is a real thing, right? Like, will trauma eventually show itself externally, mm-hmm. right? Will it chemically rearrange us, genetically sort of transform us? And what does that look like if that is the case? And so I, I just been thinking for years, I've been thinking mm-hmm. about a story about a mouthless boy. So how do we show voice, quote unquote, I hate the word voicelessness, right. but because yeah. one, because I don't think it's, it's a not thing, a thing. But yeah. How do we show the attempt to uh, strip someone of their voice mm-hmm. physically. And so I, I'm writing about a, a boy who was mouthless, who is no longer mouthless, and he's telling the story to his son. Mm. And it's really just a conversation around Black folks are oftentimes good with each other. I grew up with a kid named Lenny. He was a schizophrenic. Well, he was a, he was a man named Lenny. He was a schizophrenic. We loved him. Yeah, we had right? a guy in the neighborhood too. Yeah, yeah. 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 We we, yeah. we loved him, and he was safe. Yeah, and he was protected. 
right? Yep. It was when people outside of our community came into the community mm-hmm. that he was suddenly a threat and threatened. Mm-hmm. And I say that to say that even though I'm writing about a, a, a mouthless child, that child is not a victim mm-hmm. in my story, right? The child lives in in basically what we would like almost like an imagining of the Gullah Islands, right? Mm-hmm. He lives sort of on an island, like a small, like a small town mm-hmm. with a bunch of people who are totally fine with him. They know, and he's right. Not, he's not oppressed. He's not, he's chilling. Like yeah. he, he's fine. He's a normal kid. But this happens to be one of those places like Montauk, like the Hamptons, mm-hmm. where the summertime, the white folks come to, visit, to take uh-huh. part in the culture of the locals. Mm-hmm. And then his life is very different right. during those months. And that's sort of what the tale is all about. And so I'm, I'm working on it. It's coming. Mm-hmm. Good. I'm excited. I love this idea. You know, uh, for black folks who... Um, have done any sort of like, you know, academic study in Black folks and trauma and all of that. I have been some of the, to some very interesting conferences over my professional life about uh, Black trauma and epigenetics. It's basically like, do we inherit ancestral trauma? And does right. it show? So like the fascinating thing is it all depends on what you consider traumatic. Like the right. fact that all Black people have high blood pressure the only thing we can really come up with is the fact that white people exist is why we have is why we have high blood pressure. Right? Like there's no other so like that's an inheritance of a type, right? That we've clearly our bodies have responded to. It's reshaped how our right. bodies work. Like, yeah, so to think about like, you know, if you do 20 years of I can't breathe, like do we develop no. gills? Exactly. Yeah. Like, what is the predispos- like, what's the predisposition? Like, mm-hmm. what happens, right? And then the and, and the subplot of this story that I'm most excited about is that how do you feed a mouthless child? Oh. And so the way that this boy is being sustained mm-hmm. is through the stories of his parents, mm-hmm. right? So like the way that the way that we've all sustained, yep. right? yeah, right? Like I am being sustained through the stories of my mother mm-hmm. and my grandmother and my great grandmother. The complicated part is that some of those stories are really difficult to swallow, mm-hmm. um, and and that's sort of like the underlying theme of, of this child's life is that the stories sustain him and the person who is telling that story where those stories live are also being eaten alive by it. And it's really, mm-hmm. and it's really just like a, a, a exercise in writing about my own father who is, who okay. I lost recently and, yeah. and thinking about, and thinking about the way cancer works. That's okay. really what this is really about okay. and how, and how whiteness is a cancer mm-hmm. and how you can, you can tackle cancer and you can even beat cancer, but it always lives inside mm-hmm. and, and eventually will eat you up. It yeah. will. You know, it's interesting to think about. I, I'm so sorry about the loss of your father. Yes. Oh, um, it's all good. I appreciate that. My mom has cancer and it's been, you know, you read about cancer, you see people, you hear stories, but until you like see it up close, it, it's so... It's so visceral. It's so brutal. It's relentless. It does not give a damn. And for black people, yep. because they never bother to research anything about us, you know, mm-hmm. black people die at disproportionate rates. Look at poor Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to think about, you know, like cancer and these ideas of genetic inheritance and racism and covid the black body is subjected to quite a lot and the medical establishment does not care. So I'm intrigued to see like what that, mm-hmm. how that plays out in fiction. Um, yeah, I think a, especially too. since COVID, I think a lot of us are thinking more about blackness and our bodies and health and the ways in which we might be more vulnerable simply because of the toll of blackness. Yeah. Yeah. We have been thinking about lately in terms of this whole conversation and mm-hmm. sleep. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am obsessed right now with studying 
sleep uh-huh. and its effects on and on who we are and our bodies, our health, mm-hmm. on everything, on everything about us, right? Mm-hmm. Because I also think so many of us, you know, we live in this like, you know, you know, supremacy and 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 all these things. What they also do is convince us, which is what our parents told us and our grandparents told us, that you got to work twice as hard, mm-hmm. you got to work three times as hard, right? You got to make sure that you burn in the midnight oil, right? Mm-hmm. You work, they sleep, this that, and they're all you sleep when you're dead. Yeah, all this yeah. stuff. My my daddy told me this. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Hey. Do it while you're young. That, right? Oh, do it, it while you're young. That's <laughs> right. You young, rest when right? you're old. That's it. The rest when you're old. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know how to sleep. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And now I've learned all this stuff where I'm like, oh, sleeplessness is killing me. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, In I got to tell you, Jason, way. especially black men, every black man that us. I have known intimately has had a sleep disorder. And I'm serious. Where it's I will wild. say to them, when do you, you know, do you sleep? When do you sleep? Like, I think the intersection, I mean, it's hard for all black folk, but I do think there's something particular about masculinity and blackness that manifests as yeah, a hyper, um, I don't know, hyper vigilance, a hyper awakeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Black men have trouble sleeping and it I is. Have to, I have to dig into this. I have to. I just bought a sleep number bed. It's the most exciting thing. I, I mean, I am. I, I love it. Yeah, I, I would love to know how that get sleep, your sleep number sleep bed data. is for you because we have a nice bed here in, in L.A., but in New York, our bed is tragic i mean we've tried i mean i was trying to replace the mattress we had here and so i Mm -hmm. thought i was buying it again and it turns out the mattress we have here which is just like a a beauty rest it's not special Mm -hmm. but it's good they Mm -hmm. they stopped making it and so i bought the wrong one and the one i bought is hard Mm. as a rock it is Uh and and we're going back soon and we're both like "Mm." i don't want to go back to that bed yeah no (laughs) No. please get a sleep number okay change your life Jason, we have a question we um, love to ask all our guests. And okay. that question is, how can we, meaning Tressie and I, our listeners, the show, how can we help you do you? Oh, just uh, that's a good question. And the answer is, for me at least, just keep doing, y'all. I'm so inspired. I'm glad I had this time so I could tell you something I've been wanting to tell you for a long time, Roxanne. And what that is, is people really sleep on Untamed State. Thank it's you. a masterpiece. Thank mm-hmm. you. It's a masterpiece. I would agree. And I know everybody knows you as like an essayist and mm-hmm. and and all of those things. Uh, you know, critic, all the things, the social social commentary, social critic, all that. Look, an untamed state is a masterpiece. Oh. It's a masterpiece. I tell everybody. Oh, just Jason, read it. I, you are going to be in my heart for the rest of my life because mm-hmm. fiction is my first love, and fiction is frankly what I'm better at. And nobody knows, and nobody cares, and that's okay. I don't like it's fine because I love it. I do it for me. But thank you for seeing my fiction. Thank you. It's, it's a masterpiece. And so for me, y'all want to serve me? Just continue to you know operate at a level of of, of honesty in yourselves, right? I, it matters to me to see people just being who they are in every single space. It makes me feel a little less strange uh, and and a little more empowered to continue to do the same because it's scary being you in public spaces sometimes. Yes. Uh, and, and so we need to continue to sort of encourage each other in that way. I agree. We can do that. You do that for us. So it's the least we could do in kind. Thank you, Jason Reynolds, for joining us on Here to Slay. It's a pleasure to spend time with you and your black, black self. Seriously. <laughs> I appreciate you time. This has been a real delight. I'd love to. Thank y'all. That was fun. And he... 
he really just walks the walk. And mm-hmm. I really admire that. And it's so brilliant to see men to doing some of mm. the work of community keeping. So often in professions, oh, yeah. women have to do that. Jason, one of the things I like, I, I think I feel like it's a very sort of feminist praxis he has. He shouts people out. He lifts other people up. He is not afraid of his emotional response to work. He gives people their flowers. He builds community among readers, especially young readers and um, young readers of color. And so I often, I would have thought that's like the work that women usually do in the it field. Really, yeah. is. And it's interesting to see how specific he is. Like mm-hmm. he names names, which means he's doing the work. Yeah. And we, I, need, uh, we need that kind of docent when anytime. I mean, it's so nice to have that. But I think this past year in particular, having someone like Jason um, out in the profession doing that work is so important where one, they're really has been a growth in the number of books by and for Black artists and Black readers. There's been sort of a rush amongst publishers to find, promote, and surface um, work that maybe would have not gotten picked up in times past. This was the year of the anti-racism books, um, Ijoma Oluyo's So You Want to Talk About Race, topped the New York Times bestseller list for more than two years, for example. Mm-hmm. And so we've had this moment. It's a really interesting moment where I feel like Black authors are both hyper-visible, but we don't always have people to help guide the audience through all of that stuff. And similarly, Chris Jackson um, has been part of the group of people responsible for helping to not only develop that readership, but to kind of guide people through that readership. Uh, Chris is the publisher and editor-in-chief at One World. Even if you don't know One World, you know One World. It's an imprint of Random House and publishes people like Brian Stevenson. Again, you know One World. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram X. Kande. Uh, for a long time, he was almost the only name in prestige Black literary work. Still not a ton of people. Uh, mm-hmm. We spoke with him at the end of 2020 because we wanted to to get his perspective on everything that had happened in publishing over the last year. You know, there has been more change, I would say, this year in publishing than, you know, maybe in my lifetime in terms of trying to address issues around racial equity in publishing. But the thing that I think created the change was that there were younger people who came in and instead of just complaining about it, actually organized around it. You saw walkouts, you know, around you know, first the Woody Allen book, then, you know, people who were complaining about American Dirt. And then finally a mass walkout, both in sort of, I guess, sympathy with the Black Lives Matter protests that were going on, but also as a way of really announcing, like, this is enough, like, it's enough. It's really great to see publishing stepping up in this way, because, you know, there's so much that publishing could and should be doing that it's time. Yes, it's enough. Like, start putting your ass on the line and start doing something. This idea that, oh, there's nothing we can do is ridiculous, Mm -hmm. especially when they publish books like, and you know, I'm all for publish, whatever I, as a writer, I have to support the first amendment, but American dirt. It's not that that book shouldn't have been published. It's that you could have published far better books Mm -hmm. 
about the same topics that mm-hmm. were better written, yeah. better conceived, mm-hmm. and more interesting. American Dirt on a just a, a craft level mm-hmm. was a bad book. Yeah. And when publishers ignore craft for the marketing storyline, it is always a really clear signal to the audience about what they value and what matters. And it mm-hmm. is rarely that they value the people in the story. So in the case of American Dirt, of course, uh, in talking about the Latinx experience, right? If you really value people, you would you would level up the craft that tells their you stories, would. you know? Um, but like nobody in the world needs a Woody Allen autobiography. Listen, <laughs> they prioritize his work. And we've talked about this a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah. The valorization of the artist over mm-hmm. the, the their actions. Yeah. And which is not something that all writers get, by the way. We don't get that mm-hmm. extension of courtesy. Chris also talked about what happened in 2020 as a moment when we started to get away from having just one black writer in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Even what happened over the summer with the best sorrows where you had you know, five and seven and ten writers, you know, like even thinking about when we published Tanahasi, when we published Between the World and Me five years ago versus now. So, you know, that book went straight to number one, sold a ton of copies, and that became like the only book that a lot of people read. And now we see five years later, there is no one book. I mean, lots of people read White Fragility, but then Everything else, too. You know, like, The Bluest Eye got back on the bestseller list. You know, Hood Feminism's on the bestseller list, and even Kendi was on the bestseller list, and The Color of Money, you know, a history of housing segregation. Like, it was a wonderful range of things. But more than that, it's also within the industry, I think, more people are being brought in in more senior positions of influence. Speaking of people in more senior places, we've had many of them on the show uh, over the past year. Uh, Lisa Lucas... There's a lot of movement in senior editorial and publishing roles at all of the major houses, I think, as people it's been sort of a, a mad rush to make relationships uh, with Black creators. But there has been movement among uh, the publishers themselves from the editorial level on up. I think the interesting thing is that publishing is part of the reason why it's such a slow-moving, hidebound industry is just that. Like, it hasn't looked like the country. It hasn't pulled from the true talent pool of the country or the true diversity of worldviews and opinions and ways of seeing books and readers and audiences. And that's created a conservative and monolithic, monocultural industries. It's been very bracing, I think, for people in the industry to suddenly see people coming from other places and bringing other kinds of energy. You know what's interesting about publishing, Tressie, and I think about this a lot, because in feminism, we have a lot of conversations about how if women were in power, Mm -hmm. things would be different. Mm -hmm. But publishing is one of those fields where, to a point, women are in power. Mm -hmm. Women run publishing, Mm -hmm. and we replicate the power structures that have oppressed us. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising that publishing isn't more dynamic, but I think it proves that women are not the promised land. Yeah. And like every other industry, publishing is extraordinarily slow to change. That culture is so deeply embedded with ideas of what literature is, what it can be, who can represent the world Mm -hmm. as we live in it. And so one of the interesting things Chris talked about was the kinds of books that he wants to publish and hopefully more people in publishing will actually listen. Um, I think there's so many things that I've certainly been focused on, particularly around race, 
but maybe at the expense of understanding workers' rights or things around disability rights or things around whatever other things that I think have also had these explosions of like awareness. But I would like something that felt like a synthesis of what this moment has produced so that we could use it almost as a Bible for what we do next. I don't know, Roxanne, if I am as hopeful as Chris is <laughs> that these things have shifted and changed. I am excited about new forms of publishing, uh-huh. some things that you and I even are like experimenting with, new ways of speaking to readers and distributing. I think as much as it is about changing the people in the roles, it is probably also exerting pressure in through new forms of publication and distribution and audience building among readers. And I think if all of those things kind of coalesce, I get a little bit more hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) And that is our show for this week. Trustee and I and our entire production team are taking a few weeks off. So look for a new episode of Here to Slay on Tuesday, April 6th. If you don't already, please follow us and let us know what you're thinking about the show and our amazing guests on Twitter and Instagram and Gmail at H-E-A-R to Slay. From Luminary, Here to Slay is executive produced by us, Roxanne Gay and Tressie McMillan Cotton. Our senior producer is Curtis Fox. Our producer is Catherine Finaloza. Production support from Lauren Garcia and Caitlin Adams. Our interns are Allie McPherson and Asoki Samuel. And the dog that you hear in the background from time to time is the animal that now rules Roxanne's life. Hi, Maximus. <laughs> he's so cute, though. <laughs> I'm not even sure he's real. <laughs> he doesn't look real. There are times no. when I look at him and I'm like, that's just a teddy bear. Thank and you. I'm not even sure. That teddy bear sure. demon better get out of my house. <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.